marched for civil rights. And we made the guys sandwiches. Yay! When we women asked to speak, the guys told us our position in the movement was prone. Finally, we said enough. And for the first time, we marched for ourselves as women. Thank you so much, Emily Mann, for joining me today. My pleasure. We just heard a clip from Gloria A Life, the mm -hmm. play that you wrote that opened in New York last year and is now the premier production of your last season as artistic director here mm -hmm. at the McCarter. Gloria is performed in the round and act two involves the audience. How does that work? Yes. Well, here at McCarter, we're going to be in the Berlin Theater. And it was staged in the round in New York. Uh, and what we had to do in Daryl Roth's theater is we had to completely gut it and make a theater in the round. We are not gutting the Berlin theater. However, we are using the stage as one bank of seats. And then we have another bank of seats and we are playing it inside that and filling around. So it will be in the round. And what is the purpose of doing it in the round? The purpose, um, and this was right from the beginning concept, is that Gloria feels, as do most activists, that the circle is the way to form the nucleus of an activist movement and how the greatest um, uh, movements have started with circles whether it is the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, whether it is Gandhi's nonviolent movement, which is where she learned it when she was in India um, as a young woman. She saw the magic of talking circles there. That has been the basis of her life. And it's also um, something that she learned and continued to learn from Wilma Mankiller, who was um, the chief of the Cherokee Nation, one of her best friends. So the circle is also about tearing down hierarchy, bringing people together to share from the heart. And that's the basis of the feminist movement, and that's the basis thus of the play and of the design of the play. And the ensemble circles Gloria during the play, but she speaks directly, the actress speaks directly as to this, does the ensemble to the audience. And that's the first act, which is the story of Gloria's life and the story of the women's movement. And then the second act is actually a talking circle. Not a Q&A, not anything like you've ever seen before, but an actual talking circle. And the audience is part of that. And they're talking to the characters. They're talking, no, at the end, Mary, um, who is playing Gloria, becomes Mary McDonald. All the ensemble become themselves. And it's women of the company speaking directly with the audience. But the audience, is, it's more about them talking. Now it's about hearing the story so that the first question is, how did this play and Gloria's life and whatever you saw in the history of the movement, how did that resonate with your life? 
and people start sharing, and it goes across generation, across race, across class, and people talk to each other, and it's extraordinary how every night is different, and every night is mind-blowing what people are able to do when they speak spontaneously from their hearts. I would like to talk more about Gloria Steinem and the process of working with her. Yes. But it does seem to me that this whole second act, the way that you've taken the audience talk back and made it central to the actual production. Correct. That seems to sort of grow out of or be related to your own way of writing in terms of theater of testimony, but it's like a whole new stage. That's exactly right. I've got taken it to another level and it was because Gloria and I connected so deeply and the play uh, and, and Diane Paulus and I uh, were like one mind. We called it a mind meld, you know, the writing and the directing and the uh, conception of the whole piece, all was one. And Gloria came in on this and she was right with us on it. And so I was able as the writer, because it always said from the beginning, the second act will be a talking circle. But I had no idea whether it would work. And Diana and I were both going, oh my God. And Gloria kept saying, don't worry. It will take care of itself. They always do. And she was right. I mean, it's one of the most exciting events I've ever been able to be part of. My only sadness, it was a six month run, I could not be there at every performance, but I went to so many of them. And each time I was surprised and each time I was so deeply moved and in a different way because each group is unique. What did Gloria, Gloria Steinem, what did she mean to you growing up? What was it like working with a, a woman like that? Uh, well, I've often said that I wouldn't have been able to live the life I've led without Gloria. So she has always been um, a hero to me, a heroine to me, and, and, and an icon. And yet when you meet Gloria, she's the most unpretentious, uh, uniconic <laughs> kind of person. She's so quiet and funny and uh, has so much humility, and the best thing about Gloria is that she knows how to listen. She doesn't talk, she listens. And I learned so much from her on how to deeply listen. Um, but working with her has been a four, almost five year long process now, and it's one of the great privileges of my life. Was there anything that she was not happy with or pushed back on or made you really question in oh, terms of all the time all the time <laughs> it was constant <laughs> it was quite a process gloria was there constantly challenging us in a very sweet way but <laughs> very challenging. the ultimate fact checker the ultimate fact checker yeah really and and goad what about this and what about this and what about this? It's, well, we only have an hour and 20 minutes. We have to decide between this and this and this and this. Mm -hmm. and, um, eventually she just, she trusted us and she understood that theater is not a lecture, theater is not a right. memoir, theater, you know, that there, you can only get so much in and theater is also about time yeah, and moments. And so eventually she just got really into it and she loved the rehearsal process and she was mesmerized with what you can do with music and light and sound and movement. And, and, and now that it is a theatrical piece, you have 
the chance to see different actors inhabit the yes, role. Yes, and now yes. you have now with this production you have Mary McDonald. What does she bring to it? Oh my God. Well, Mary and I have a very long history. We have been the closest of close friends since um, she did Still Life, my play, um, off Broadway in 1981, 80, 81. And uh, she was my leading lady for the next 10 years until I came here. And she went off to become a TV star and a movie star. And I was running this theater and I've been trying to get her here and she's never been available when the plays I was doing were right for her. So that she's coming back for my final season, my final production in my final season, in my newest play, means the world to both of us. It's amazing because, you know, you get to a certain age and often women are sidelined and Mary and I feel like we're at the top of our games artistically. Um, a lot of times the guys get to start out together and then come back together with very few stories where you see that with female colleagues in the business. And so we're just thrilled to be able to do that. And quite frankly, I think she's going to knock it out of the park. She has so many qualities that Gloria has. I mean, she is herself an activist, but the humor and the warmth and, uh, well, she has it all. So this season, the 2019-2020 season is your last as artistic director at the mm -hmm. McCarter Theater. And, uh, you know, I was, I saw your first production here, which is kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> you saw Glass Menagerie? I saw the Glass oh Menagerie. Oh God, how great. I've seen how you've transformed this theater. I mean, I wasn't in the front row seat all the time, but you know, you, you've done a lot. You added a second stage. Yes. You have encouraged the careers of so many different playwrights at all mm -hmm. stages of their careers. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you won the Tony. You won the Tony for the best regional theater, right? Yeah. Yeah. And. I know that there were naysayers at the beginning mm -hmm. and that it wasn't always an easy, an easy path. Mm -hmm. How do you feel looking back? Do you feel vindicated? Do you feel, <laughs> do you feel amazed? Like, how do you feel? Oh, it's so complex how I feel. Mainly I feel elated, I have to say. I very rarely give myself a break. I'm so self-critical and I never rest. But I gave myself the opportunity to take a big old exhale. I'll probably take a bigger exhale after Gloria opens and after the season ends. But I thought, you know, well done. It was really hard, really wonderful. Um, and what we were able to accomplish here is, is massive. We transformed this theater from uh, what it was to a national and international treasure. Um, local and national, uh, we were able to support some of the most important playwrights um, of the, the past generations and the present, and that kept changing what the present meant. Um, and just to Ma Alva McCraney, I mean, to go, we plucked him out of Yale and we, we supported and championed him, and you know, the brother-sister plays became really quite extraordinarily important. He's now chair of playwriting at Yale and won the Academy Award for Moonlight, you know, and we've got many stories like that. Um, 
So we were able to find people at the beginning of their careers, and then when Edward Albee and Athel Fugard, you know, some of the the great legends of the world theater, um, made us their home. That meant a great deal, and often at a time when they needed us as much as we needed them. So it was everyone from the from the people just starting to the legends of um, of the world drama. We we had them here, and I'm. I'm thrilled by that. You know, it's true of actors, designers, directors, playwrights. I, I, f I feel good. Before you came to the McCarter, you had the big success of Execution of Justice. Yes. Your documentary style play about the murders of Harvey Milk and George Moscone. Since then, you've continued to write compelling works that continue in the theater of testimony style. Mm -hmm. Having Our Say and Greensboro Requiem are just two that come mm -hmm. immediately to mind, mm -hmm. to my mind anyway. Does the solitary act of writing balance out the sort of extremely public work that you do as both director and as artistic director of this like public institution? Absolutely. I love that balance. I couldn't be just uh, isolated all the time writing nor would I be completely fulfilled if I weren't writing, I were only directing and being an artistic director. Um, I loved the balance of all three. It was a three-legged stool for me, and you know, <laughs> I loved it. I love all three jobs for different reasons, all three parts of, uh, of my life. And they all came together here, you see. So I never felt, I didn't feel fractured. It was all one. Um, Did it surprise you how, how it worked out? It absolutely shocked me how it all worked out. I came here for three to five years maximum. And here I'm still sitting here in the Matthews Theater. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. right. It, it grew. I, I, I can't believe it, really. Mm -hmm. There was um, a lot of potential and it grew. It just kept growing. Mm -hmm. Like a great marriage, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't feel a need to to trade in for another partner. <laughs> I'm curious um, about the writing. I was rereading some of your plays and I was really struck by the, uh, struck again maybe, by the way that some of the characters who are like the not so good guys or the bad guys or mm. the villains come across as, I mean, you can understand where they're coming from. Oh, you good, know? good. You, Yes. See them as maybe weak or misguided mm -hmm. or sad, but they're still human. The way that you work by really delving into the documentary materials, is that something that helps you with that? I think maybe that's true, but also I think it's about directing and acting. You cannot direct, I mean, I, I, I try to make even down to the person who has five lines, have a full life when I'm directing. And, um, you know, I started out as an actor, so I'm really, really aware of that. You cannot, even if you're playing the greatest villain, even if you're playing Richard III, you, you know, you, he, he, what, you have to advocate for him. And what is it that you can advocate for? Because most people, except, well, you know, it's funny that I bring up Richard, because in fact, he may be the only villain who glories in being a villain and enjoys being a villain. But let's take someone else. Let's take, you know, the Scottish play, the Scottish king. I can't say his name because we're in the theater. Um, 
It starts with an M. Um, he kept believing that he was right. And then he had to justify and justify and justify until he came up against the wall of utter guilt and despair. That's often how people do bad things. And it, it, it's not edifying at all. If you just name someone a bad guy, how did he become a bad guy? Why is he a bad guy? How can he continue doing that? I mean, you cannot affect change. And deep inside me, I'm an activist. and I'm always looking at how you can make the world a better place. You can't make the world a better place unless you understand perhaps who you might call your enemy. Know your enemy. Love thine enemy. You should bring your enemies, you know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. You need to know the deeper workings of the other side. And you don't have light without darkness, and so you have to, you know, find all of that within every individual. And then it's up to the audience to wrestle with the reality of all that. It's too easy to do black and white. I'm always interested in the gray areas, but I'm also interested in understanding evil. I mean, I look at a Klansman and I'm not going to say, oh, there are good people on all sides. Sorry. Like some, people <laughs> some people have said that. <laughs> I wouldn't be one of them. But I have to understand him. This November is the 40th anniversary of yes. the Greensboro Massacre, where a rally to improve conditions for workers at a textile plant led to the deaths of five of the organizers. Racism, white supremacy, anti-communist sentiment, and a blind eye turned by the police. All were in the mix that led to the final fatal shootout. Yes. After the 15th anniversary of the massacre, you wrote a play about it based on deep research into the event that premiered in 1996 mm -hmm. called Greensboro Requiem. My colleague, Mark Fields, produced a documentary on it at the time that ends with you, and I'm going to play the clip. I went back to Greensboro in 1994 because it was the 15th anniversary, uh, a commemoration of, of the massacre. Um, it was sponsored by a coalition of educational and church groups and it was a very moving and beautiful event. They dedicated a plaque to honor the five who died. It was really a gesture of reconciliation and a time to begin the healing. And it was then that I realized that I had to call my play a requiem because requiem suggests both the remembrance and a healing. And it was time to heal the grief and the sorrow caused by the politics of hate. In the end, ironically, the play is very hopeful. And I remain hopeful that the theater can do this, that by giving a forum uh, for an audience to hear the words and the feelings of the people involved that uh, we can begin to see as a community that racism survives only when communities let it survive and that perhaps racism can be stopped if we're all willing to stand up to it. I have to say that that just choked me up when I saw it again, because it seemed so hopeful. And I'm like, here we are, 
so many years later, is hope still the right? Yes. Hope is still the only path forward. Um, Gloria Steinem, as she calls herself, she's a self-proclaimed hopeaholic. And to be an activist, you have to be. Um, I am full of hope. Uh, we've come a long way. The disease and, or the cancer of racism, anti-Semitism, anti-immigration, all that, that's been in our culture from the beginning. It's been, sadly, in the culture of Europe. And so many of uh, you know, the uh, white Americans are European Americans. Um, and they, or their parents, or their grandparents, learned it with mother's milk. You don't eradicate that. You disallow it. Right now, what we're seeing is that the curtain has been drawn back again, or the rocks have been turned over again, and the maggots are coming out. It's not that they weren't there, they've been covered. It became... When my mother grew up in New Jersey, she couldn't get a job as a Jew teaching school, okay? She had to work very hard to do that. Now, she would be 97 years old if she were alive right now. After World War II, she could. You weren't allowed anymore to discriminate against Jews or say that that's why you were not given that job. After the Holocaust, you weren't allowed to. So when anti-Semitism is allowed again culturally, racism and, and hatred of immigrants is, is allowed again, then it comes back and we hear it again. But have we come far in terms of the eradication of anti-Semitism in this country? Yes. Have we come far in the eradication uh, of racism? We have a long way to go, but is it better now than it was in 1945? Yes. Yes. And you're not going to find this, I'm just hearing Jada Pinkett today on, on NPR, and she was saying, the difference that my, of my grandmother, my mother, me, and my daughter. Our experience as black women is, you know, and of racism, the wounds are different. Have we come further? Is, have I come further in my life in terms of what I'm able to do as a black woman than my mother could or my grandmother could? Yes. Same thing with the women's movement. Was I able to do more that even my friends who were 10 years older than I am and they couldn't go to law school. They were paralegals or they worked as secretaries in law firms. And 10 years later, they could have gone to top law schools, right? So have we come far as women? Yes. Are we in danger of losing a lot of what we fought for? Yes. But have we come a long way? Yes. And that's one of the reasons why I love doing the Glorious Dynam show is because often our generation will come in and even older generation come in so depressed, so upset. Oh my God, you know, there's, there's a placard and from um, the, uh, uh, the Women's March of, I can't believe I'm still marching for this shit, right? <laughs> well, yes. And 
we've come a long way. So yeah. as Gloria says, you know, you have to keep on pushing forward, but we're not turning back now. We've come too far. I mean, and oh, no and what I wanted to end what? with was the 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 young the uh, uh, the the older folks in the audience. Even after we do this, all of this wonderful hope and all this at the end of the show, it often takes the talk back when the younger people will get up and say, "I'm on fire! Are you kidding me? You have to stop this. We have a lot of work to do." And they, by the time the older folks leave, they're rejuvenated. Mm. So. Um, if you're feeling blue, come to the show, because you'll, you, you'll get charged. You know, it's okay, we're gonna be okay. You took one deep breath, you're mm. gonna take a couple more during this season. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about moving on? I'm really excited. <laughs> I have a lot of projects brewing. Um, I've written a new play, The Pianist, an adaptation of The Pianist. Um, which is based on the uh, memoir by Spielmann, that's the same, the, the, the movie that um, Polanski did um, uh, was based on the memoir. And it's really scary because it's a genius movie, you know, but I've done something that could only be a play. It's not trying to be the movie and it's based on the memoir and not the movie. And uh, I was commissioned by Broadway producers to do it and they love it and so I'm excited about that happening in 2021 after I leave. Also talking to the Apollo and um, uh, Jean Corlitz and, and Nina Matza about having our say in the collaboration with the Apollo in Harlem as a, an immersive piece serving dinner. Papa's dinner will be served and it will be a series of rotating stars um, to kick off the 200th anniversary of the Harlem Renaissance. I'm deeply honored that they want to do it with having our say. That's I mean, there are just lots of things swirling and then I'm looking at other directing projects and I'm just going to be an artist. And I also am looking forward to just letting go of the administrative side of things, of not having to raise money all the time, not having to worry about the marketing, not having to worry about, um, you know, the board, just, just go on and be an artist again. I'm really excited about that. And also leaving time. I have a two-year-old grandson and I want to be with him. It's so exciting. It's so <laughs> I am besotted. I'm so madly in love with him, and um, I want to spend a lot of time with him. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for taking the time My today. Pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you. The new season at the McCarter has been dubbed Signature Emily in recognition of Emily Mann's transformative tenure as artistic director for the past 30 years. Mann's play, Gloria, A Life, opens the season. Starring Mary McDonnell as Gloria Steinem, it runs September 6th through October 6th at the McCarter Theatre. For tickets, visit mccarter.org. A special thanks to Tom Miller for the rehearsal audio from Gloria Alive, and to Mark Fields, the producer-director of Greensboro, A Public Dialogue. For more about all of the arts in New Jersey, visit jerseyarts.com. I'm Susan Wolner for the Jersey Arts Podcast. Thanks for listening. The Jersey Arts Podcast is made possible by the New Jersey State Council on the Arts.
supporting excellence and engagement in the arts since 1966.